A very warm welcome to the Word Life podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going back to 2015 and a track by Nick Tucker with the wonderful title 12 Things God Can't Do and Why They Should Help You Sleep at Night. These talks show us the character of our God and help us see what that looks like for us in our lives. I hope you find they expand your mind and warm your heart. Here's Nick. We live in an uncertain age, don't we? It's an uncertain age in all kinds of ways. We've got this, um, the most uncertain general election of a generation ahead of us uh, in, in May. And um, it feels very much as though our society is changing very fast. And I know that for many who are Christians, it feels uh, a time of anxiety. What is our place as Christians in our society, in our culture? Uh, Christian faith that was once kind of revered and very respectable uh, is increasingly uh, suspected is increasingly uh, a cause for uh, opposition, and even sometimes it seems criminalization. Uh, Add to that the march of various militant versions of Islam through North Africa, uh, and uh, we're aware that this is an uncertain world and an uncomfortable world in which to be a Christian. And of course, you don't need any of those things, do you, uh, for someone close to you to get sick, You don't need any of those things to find yourself suddenly involved in a life-changing car accident. We live in a world that is is uncertain and unstable, where we cannot predict the future, where we cannot be secure in ourselves, where even the richest, most powerful people can suddenly, at a stroke, be gone. Some of you are probably too young to remember the... Sunday morning that Princess Diana of Wales died suddenly in that car crash. I remember uh, where I was, uh, and I guess if, if you were an adult at the time, you probably remember too. And I think the big shock of it was, there was this person who seemed untouchable, who seemed to have everything, who was beautiful, famous, wealthy, and then in a stroke she was gone. And... As a culture, we didn't know how to cope with it. Now, for us as Christians, the world can be so different from that. Even with all the uncertainties that we've spoken of, the Bible presents us with a God who says, you can sleep at night and you don't have to be afraid. Now, I'm conscious that for some people, talking about sleep is a very kind of touchy and personal thing. Uh, I've lived with someone who has delayed sleep phase syndrome, who uh, her body actually rebels against the idea of going to sleep at a normal time. And and so um, I'm not for a moment, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you must, you know, it's a given that you will have a good night's sleep. There are all kinds of medical reasons why that might not be the case. But for all of us, we lose sleep, don't we, when we're anxious, We lose sleep when we're worrying about things that we can't control. And the Bible says to us, your life doesn't need to be like that. Because there is a God who is in control. There is a God who won't sleep. Who will not slumber. Who will mark your ways. Would you turn with me to Psalm 4? And when you find Psalm 4, you'll notice that next to it is Psalm 3. And that's what I'd like you to look at. We we will get to Psalm 4 as well. Uh, But uh, Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. His situation is not a good one. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? 
Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. His situation is humanly hopeless. In fact, people are looking at David's life, at the fact that his own son is trying to take his life, that it seems that all Israel has gone after Absalom and not after David. And David said, there are so many people trying to kill me that people don't think even God can save me. But verse 3, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. What's the result? Verse 5. I lay down and slept. I don't know about you. I don't sleep well if, I don't know, I've got an exam or like a big talk to give in the morning. Or I'm, you know, on a black fold-out sofa. (laughs) David is in such a bad situation that people are saying not even God can save him now. What kind of sleep, what kind of night's sleep do you think you would get under those circumstances? Deep, peaceful, restful, the kind that when you open your eyes you think, yes, I have slept and I feel good about today. I wouldn't think that I would sleep like that, but David says, I lay down and I slept. And then the second half of verse five. I awoke. For the Lord sustained me. David has realized something incredibly profound. He's realized that actually the fact that you wake up in the morning isn't a given. The fact that you wake up in the morning is a gift from God. Anytime, whether you've got thousands of people pursuing you, carrying swords, wanting to end your life, or whether you've just gone to bed at Pontins at the first night of Word and Life. If you wake up in the morning, it is a gift from God. And so he says, I lay down, I slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. What we're going to do over the next four mornings is we're going to think about what it is about God that means you should be able to put your head on the pillow at night and trust. Trust enough to let go of everything, go to sleep, become unconscious, have no control over the world at all because the world is in safe hands and you are in safe hands that's what we're talking about when we talk about the things that God can't do that make you sleep at night so I said we'd get to Psalm 4 there we go it's the same thing again isn't it verse 8 in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you O Lord alone make me dwell in safety But why talk about things that God can't do? Why go there? I mean, you probably, you may not remember the film Bill and Ted's uh, Great Amazing Adventure or whatever it was. Um, But uh, you may well remember the song that goes, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's, that's true. But is it? There's nothing that he cannot do. Can God make a stone that's too heavy for him to lift? There's nothing that he cannot do. Okay, says Richard Dawkins. How about your God who can do anything? 
How about he makes a stone that's too heavy for him to lift? Can he do that? Now, that's a clever question, isn't it? Because if he can't do it, there's something he can't do. But what if he can do it? But if he can do it, there's something he can't do, isn't there? Because now there's a rock he can't lift. Oh, well, maybe, maybe there are things God can't do. Maybe, Richard Dawkins, you've proved to me that my childish faith in God is, a, is something that's holding me down from being truly human and recognizing the world as an adult. Or maybe that is not the sort of God that the Bible presents us with, a God who could just do anything without exception. Can God just do anything? Does when Theologians use um, Latin words because it makes us feel superior uh, and um, as though we've had an education. Okay? Um, and so for that reason, there are, there are these sort of Latin words that float around that describe things about God. And one of those words is omnipotence. It just means all-powerfulness. That God is all-powerful. Now, Richard Dawkins comes along and says, you childish Christians, you believe that God is all-powerful. Let me prove to you that that is logically impossible because an all-powerful God has to be able to do something that makes himself not all-powerful or he's not all-powerful and aha but is that what omnipotence means well um, what do we do in, in a situation like this where we have a seemingly unanswerable question well the obvious answer is you ask meatloaf and you say Mr. Loaf and um, are there things it's better not to be able to do? And Meatleaf replies in his song, I would do anything for love, brackets, but I won't do that. I'd lie for you. He says, I'll do anything for love. I'd lie for you, and that's the truth. And you scratch your head and you think to yourself, thank you, Mr. Loaf, you have answered me by pointing out the inherent epistemic quandary we find ourselves in. I had lie for you, and that's the truth. And you think to yourself, oh, but if I know that you would lie, how do I know that that's the truth? If, meet, you are a self-confessed liar, if lying is something that's on the agenda for you, how do I know when you're telling me the truth? Because after all, even, even Meatloaf recognizes there are limits to what you're prepared to do for love. He says, I won't do that without ever specifying what that is. But, you know, he's, he's a great theologian and should be taken very seriously. Um, there are things it's better not to be able to do. You see, Richard Dawkins may well think that Christians are naive and childish in thinking about God as all-powerful, but really he is the person displaying a childish understanding of what Christians mean when they talk about God being all-powerful. We don't mean things about making rocks that are too difficult for them to lift. We don't even mean that God can do anything. The Bible is very clear that God cannot lie. The Bible is very clear that far beyond being able to do anything at all, God is much better than that because there are things that he cannot do. Because you see, there are things it is better not to be able to do. So in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, which is a verse that we'll look at later on in the week. Confronted with the reality of human failing 
and of the tendency of humans to fall away by their own, uh, in their own strength. Paul says to Timothy, even when you're faithless, even when your faith isn't up to much, God remains faithful. Why? Because there are things God cannot do, and he cannot deny himself. He cannot change into somebody else. He cannot let you down. He cannot break his promises. He cannot lie. He cannot change his mind. Now, before we come on to the first specific thing God cannot do that I want us to to look at together, I want to get you guys to do a little bit of work. Because I want us to think together about um, the picture of God that we're given uh, in the Bible. And predominantly in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament sets the whole scene for God's work in the world and introduces us to who we're dealing with when we meet Jesus. And if you like, the overwhelming message of the Old Testament is God isn't like us. He's not like you. You're dealing with someone very different. So would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40? And we'll see how this works. Um, it's, it's a big group, so um, we'll see how it works with, with feedback and turning to each other and, uh, and talking things through. But this is what I'd like you to attempt. When you found Isaiah 40, uh, that is actually the passage I want you to look at this time, um, starting at verse 12, I'm not going to read it out loud because I think we probably read quicker in our heads. Okay, so um, I've got two tasks for you and then some questions for you to think about. So the first task is to turn to the person next to you or a couple of people around you, decide what your small group is going to be ahead of time. We don't want to negotiate that later. Okay, you've got three seconds to do that. One, two, three. Good. This is that awful moment where you feel like the kid in the playground who doesn't get picked for the team. Okay? Now, what I'd like you to do is just bearing in mind who you're going to be talking to, Um, read through Isaiah 40 quietly in your head from verse 12 right through to the end with these questions in mind that I'd then like you to discuss. What is God like? What does God know? And how does he know it? Okay, the questions are on the screen. I won't repeat them. So read through Isaiah 40, 12 uh, through to the end uh, and ask yourself those questions. All right. Okay, so um, if you'd like a microphone placed in it, put your hand in the air uh, and tell us uh, what you've seen about what God is like from Isaiah 40. And if someone be brave, just be the first. Otherwise, I'll just pick on someone I know. Pretty big. He's pretty big. Thank you. That is, that is right, isn't it? I, I mean, just thinking about how big... Um, has, has anyone here ever seen the sea? I mean, I know it's going to be hard today with the weather conditions, even from here. The sea's large, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I remember um, one sort of holiday in Cornwall when I was a kid. I remember, you know, we were sat on the beach, and then suddenly the sea decided to sweep my brother off. Uh, and a wave came up and just washed him away. I mean, we got him back... <laughs> But water's powerful, isn't it? The sea's powerful. Yeah, the Atlantic Ocean is a large body of water. The Pacific, I believe, is even bigger. And Isaiah says, 
Go on, try see how much water you can hold in the palm of your hand. Don't spill any. Well, when God does that, that's all the oceans of the world. Fairly easily. Yeah, he's pretty big. But what's, what's he like? There is no comparison. Thank you very much indeed. There is nothing you can compare him to. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? So he's not like anything. If you, want, if you want something to think about him being like, think about him being like the sort of person who'd have a hand big enough to hold the world. Or, uh, you know, to hold all the oceans of the world in the palm of his hand. Or um, who would take Mount Everest and be very careful not to drop it because it's like dust to him. Where you can balance the mountains and the scales. What's God like? Not really comparable to anything, but if you want to think about him in terms of the world, well, imagine someone doing a chemistry experiment and very carefully trying to balance exactly the right amount of sulfur on a balance. Because that's what the mountains are like to God. He's unimaginably big incomparably enormous. What else is he like, though? I wonder what else you spotted in terms of things that God is like or, or what God is like. What needs to be said about him? I'll come to things about his knowledge in a moment, but there's one other thing I'd really like someone to, to highlight, or if you don't, I will. He's caring, thank you. Absolutely. He, he, he watches over his people. He thinks about his people. It's disproportionately um, weighted towards people at the front because I can hear them without the mic. But if you're brave enough for the mic and you're further back, please do go for it. Um, powerful. Thank you. So rulers come to naught, blows on them. They go. He lasts forever. He's in control. Yes. He's untiring. Thank you. We've got one at the back here. Come on, let's get a microphone up. Let's reward the... the... He doesn't grow tired or weary. Thank you. This is old-fashioned technology we're using here. We're using hands now. Everlasting. Creator. Thank you. Tell me where you got that. I'm sure it's there, but help us. He stretched out the heavens with a span. I can't hear that, sorry. Bring some hands into it. That might just be people having a chat outside, I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Look with me at... um, place now. Look at verse 15. The nations are like nothing to him, like a drop in a bucket, like dust on the scales. It talks about the coastlands being like fine dust. It's hard to imagine Prestatin being like dust, isn't it? It's clogged together and soggy in the rain. But Lebanon Get this, verse 16. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Why is, God, why is Isaiah telling us about God relative to the nations? 
because no one can offer him enough worship. So Lebanon, famous for its trees, famous for its cedars. And if you've ever seen a cedar of Lebanon, you'll know what I'm talking about when I tell you that they are whopping trees. I'd never seen one until a few years ago. I went to a wedding down in Wales and they'd planted in the 19th century and people kind of were in the habit of bringing trees from around the world and planting arboretums. And, and this cedar of Lebanon had been growing since about 1850. And so I went for a little walk around it. Um, and after a while, I had a rest and then carried go. <laughs> it's massive. And Lebanon is known for its cedars in the Bible. And, and repeatedly, it's the, this idea of cedars of Lebanon. They're this pillar, this idea of strength and supply. And God says, cut down all the trees in Lebanon and make a bonfire. Everyone. And make a fire and kill all the animals and put them on. And make a sacrifice. It's not enough. Says Isaiah, that is not enough for the worship of this God. He is so holy that if the nations brought their treasures and sacrificed them to him, if the greatest tree-bearing nation on earth, bought all its trees and built a, built a pyre as high as the eye could see and set it on fire and it was like you couldn't be in the same you know, postcode because you'd get burnt. They put all the animals on top. God's holiness is such that it's not enough, not sufficient. The nations that seem so mighty and so powerful, even if they directed all their energies to the worship of God, They could not do enough for this God who is so incomparable, so holy, so mighty, so beyond your imagining. You get the picture. So then I ask you, what does God know? In Isaiah 40, what does God know? Okay, I'm going to do the obvious one. He knows everything. Give me examples from Isaiah 40. Of him knowing everything. He's measured the waters. No mysteries about the scale of the universe for God. Okay, uh, one at a time. So, go on. He's stretched out the heavens. Again, there's this idea of him sort of measuring and knowing the universe that he's created. There was someone back here. The right way, he knows the right way. So he doesn't just know things, but he knows ethics. He knows the names of all the angels, or if you like, of all the stars. Depends how you read it. Doesn't need a teacher. How does God know things? Well, he doesn't get. He hasn't. No one's taught him anything. He knows the ways of Israel. Okay, so here is a God who knows the name of every star and who knows what's going on in your life. That's extraordinary. Look at um, what it says about the stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Every single star has a name. It's not just the ones 
that we've named, but all of them, all, all that sort of mass in the Milky Way, every galaxy. Now, in Scripture, interestingly, there's this sort of interchange between the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Um, and Abraham is told to reckon his descendants in terms of both, and, 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 and they seem to sort of be interchanged as you go along. That's interesting because the latest scientific estimates suggest that if you counted every grain of sand on every beach in the world uh, and in every desert in the world, you'd be roughly around the same figure as the number of stars in the, in the universe. It's sort of an interesting kind of fact, but it gives you an idea how many stars there are, doesn't it? it if you doubt that, go down to the beach this afternoon... Okay, here's your homework. Go down to the beach this afternoon and measure off a meter squared. And I'd like you to report back tomorrow how many grains of sand there were. Just in that meter squared of beach. Good luck with that. Um, it may take till, till Tuesday. I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to take you a while, isn't it? In fact, okay, let's just, do a, let's just do a single spoonful. Call it a teaspoon. Count every grain of sand in that and give them all a name. And then come back tomorrow and name them all for me. And don't get any wrong. Does that give you some kind of idea of what sort of knowledge God has of his universe? And what's really striking about it is that his control of his universe and his knowledge of his universe go hand in hand, don't they? You can't separate them. So why are all the stars there night after night after night, says Isaiah? Because God calls them all out by name. The universe continues to exist the way that it does because God knows it. Tuck that away. We'll need that later. The universe con continues to exist the way that it does because God knows it so intimately. God has no teacher, and you cannot imagine the scale of his knowledge. Every star named called out at night. Now, the big point that Isaiah is trying to make, and we got there pretty quickly, I guess, is that God is not like anything in the universe. The uni he can't be compared with the things that you think are great, the mountains, the mountains, symbols of strength, places of religious devotion in the ancient Near East. They're dust to God, trees, not enough for a sacrifice. The, the creation cannot be compared to him. Why? Because there are two kinds of thing that exist. This is the thing Isaiah really wants you to understand. There is only one person to worship. There is really only one God to worship. That is the God who made all of this. There are two kinds of thing that exist. Now, this is where people often come unstuck because we carry around wrong ideas about what the two kinds of thing are. Lots of people, maybe some of you, um, carry around with us this idea that the two kinds of thing that exist are natural and supernatural things. Okay, so we think that um, you know, the stuff of the material world is one kind of thing and spiritual, supernatural things are another kind of thing and that that's the sort of basic division of the universe, natural, supernatural. Then when something supernatural happens, we give it enormous power. We think it must be somehow a sign from God or something like that because natural, supernatural. But that's not how the universe is divided up. 
you come to the New Testament, you meet all kinds of supernatural things, don't you, that aren't from God. You meet with demons who can do magic, who can do some kind of fortune-telling that Paul casts out and causes trouble by disrupting the economy. There are supernatural things, things that are not of this world, things that are spiritual, that are not divine. But it's tempting to think as though God and Satan, if you like, were kind of equal and opposite forces in the supernatural realm. That's not the picture the Bible paints. Nor is it a matter of good against evil. There are two kinds of things in existence, good things and bad things. In fact... In the Bible, what we begin to see is that evil isn't a force at all, not really. That evil is to God's goodness, what darkness is to light. It's not a force, it's not a power. It's what happens when goodness isn't there where it should be. It's an undoing of what, sh- what is right. It's a, it's a refusal of the goodness that God has put into his creation. Evil is darkness. It's not that there's an evil, uh, equal and opposite force to God in the universe. No, 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 no. God is unique. There are two kinds of things that exist, God and things that God has made. That is the creator-creature distinction. And if you don't have that straight in your mind, then the world will not make any sense to you. It cannot. The Bible makes no sense. Unless you understand that he is God and I am not. And nothing from the creation should be put in his place. That's why idolatry matters so much. There is only one God. There is only one creator. There is one source of all things, one source of all goodness, of all right, of all knowledge, of everything. And until you understand that, then you won't understand really anything of what the Bible is trying to teach you about reality and about who God is. And you can see this in God's name. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, You may want to turn there. Um, I know I do. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God has sent Moses to... Pharaoh and Moses is reluctant and keeps trying to find uh, ways out of it. It says, you know, verse uh, 11, who am I that I should go? And God says, wrong question. Okay, then who are you? Better question. I'll tell you the answer to that one. And God says, verse 14, I am who I am. There is something fundamental to the structure of reality in those words. God says, I am who I am. Nothing made God. He doesn't come from anything. You exist because you've been given existence. There was a time when you were not. There was a time when you... You did not exist, and you came into being. Why? Because God gave you being. Who gave God being? No one. I am who I am. So on your handouts, you have another one of these um, 
sort of uh, little bits of theological Latin, and I apologize again. But um, if you read, if you ever read books about the doctrine of God or anything like that, you, you'll come across this word, this word arseity, which means that God comes from himself. Okay, he has no origin outside himself. He is uncreated. He is the uncreated creator. He has no beginning. And so, and this is vital to understand, he exists by definition. Okay, so it is possible to conceive of Nick Tucker as not existing. Not difficult. Most of the world manages that all the time. Never heard of my name, wouldn't, it means nothing to them. It's perfectly possible to uh, define me without existence. All you have to do is read a book of uh, history before the year 1974. I didn't exist. Write my name into that book, you're talking about someone who doesn't exist. Okay? When it comes to God, existing being is part of the definition. Why is that so important? Let me explain. Would you please stand, if it is safe for you to do so. If you're unable to stand, please don't. Um, but if you can, please stand up. This is the moment at which it's really tempting to say, I had no good reason to do that. I just wanted to see if I had power. Um, I do have a reason. I have a reason, I promise. Okay, now if you can safely, whilst you're standing up, close your eyes. Please do that now. And I'd like you to imagine a horse... Can you do that? Can you imagine a horse? I want you to think quite carefully about it. What does it look like? I don't need to know what it smells like. Okay? That's great. Okay, you can open your eyes. Okay, now I'd like you to sit down if your horse was white. Can you do that? This isn't a psychological experiment, don't worry. Pastoral team, can you just... <laughs> okay, now I'd like you to sit down um, if your horse was grey. That's pony speak for white. Um, that's just testing you. There we are. <laughs> One or two. I knew it would happen. Right. Um, sit down if your horse was brown. Interesting. Okay. Now I'd like you to sit down if your horse had a plaited mane. Okay, that didn't work. Uh, sit down if your horse was standing on four legs. Interesting. Okay. This is good. This is a challenge. All right. Okay. Sit down if your horse was pink. There's Richard Cunningham not here. Um, fine. Please sit. I'm, I'm not going to... There was one point and one point only to this. And that is that you've all thought of a horse. And what you all thought of was a horse. I take it. It wasn't a cow. It wasn't a dog. Uh, it wasn't a refrigerator. It was a horse. Okay, but some of you had horses that were brown, some of you had horses that were grey or white or, or black or pink and plastic with plaited manes or without, mostly on four legs. Now, those of you who had a black horse, do you think the people who had white horses were imagining actual horses? The answer to that question is yes, yes they were. What about the people with brown horses? Uh-huh, yeah, those were, those were horses. Now, those of you who had horses that were on four legs, I want you to imagine something terrible. Um, some hungry youths from the village uh, thought to themselves, I could really do the Tesco lasagna. 
uh, and um, they came along and cut off one of the legs off your horse and took it home for culinary purposes. Your horse is now on three legs. Is it a horse still? Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? There are all kinds of things that could be true about your horse, that if you take them away, it's still your horse. It's still a horse. It hasn't suddenly become a cow or a refrigerator or a table. It's still a horse. There are things you can take away from a horse, and it's still a horse. Those are what um, theologians would call non-essential attributes, things that you can take away, and it's still the thing that it is. But there is something about a horse that if you take it away, it's not a horse anymore. If you make it into something else, if you, you, know, it, you, know, if you give it udders and call it Ermintrude, and, you know, it's a cow. That, that, you know, and so there is something that's essential to it being a horse, something that if you took it away, it's not a horse anymore. And that's what uh, theologians call an essential attribute. Something without it, it's not that kind of thing anymore. With God, everything's in the definition. Everything's essential. I am who I am. Everything is essential. Everything's in the definition. And so, God is perfect. There is nothing that he should have that he doesn't have. There is nothing that he does have that he shouldn't have, that he'd be better off without. He is perfect. He is absolutely the best thing that he can be. This is Augustine of Hippo writing in the late 4th century. This is Augustine's comment on uh, what God says about himself in Exodus 3 verse 14. God alone is that which is and what he is. And he is greater, better, and more delightful than anything that can be imagined. God is the highest of all, than whom nothing greater can be imagined. He is life, wisdom, strength, truth, eternal blessing, and blessed eternity, and all true God. And that bit in the middle, God is the highest of all, than whom nothing greater can be imagined. Anselm of Canterbury, the greatest ever British theologian, he was actually an Italian, um, he took that and, and, and meditated on it and wrote this, an incredible book called the Proslogion in which he starts with this idea, God is that than which nothing greater can be imagined. And from that, he proved that God must exist. And though all kinds of philosophers have done battle with it, and though all kinds of people have tried to take that apart and say, no, it's not true for all kinds of reasons, Immanuel, Kant, all these great philosophers, Leibniz, they've all come along and, 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 and done battle with it, Bertrand Russell. But in the end, they've never been able decisively to disprove it. And some says, God is that greater than which nothing can be imagined. And therefore, he must exist. Now, he's trying to teach you something about what God is really like. He's not trying to prove to an atheist that there is a God that's fruitless. But he's saying the God of the Bible is a God who must exist, who is life, who is perfect. There is nothing better, nothing greater than him. He's absolutely and simply perfect, as Edward Lee put it. 
because he's got everything that is to be desired for the chiefest happiness. You cannot add to God and improve him. You cannot take things away from God and improve him. He is absolutely perfect. And because of that as creator, he is the source of all good things. All good things come from him. There is nothing that exists that is good that is not from him. So, finally we get to something he can't do then. Having talked about how great he is, how majestic he is, how nothing can be taken away, he cannot learn. Now when you think about that, in a creature, not being able to learn is a defect, a massive defect. You know, when the A&E doctor says to me, Nick, you don't learn, he's not complimenting me. When um, you get that on your kid's school report, that is not a ringing endorsement. Your child cannot learn. Great. With the creator, it's not a good. With the creature, it's not a good thing. But with the creator, it's another thing altogether. Let me try to explain why. I want you to imagine that uh, God's mind is like a water butt in your garden. Okay, and as the rain comes down, you know, water butt fills up. Now, why would a water butt be unable to get any fuller? Well, there are a number of possible reasons, aren't there? One is that it's really as full as it can get. It is full up to the brim. Have you ever felt like that after a long day of, uh, I don't know, something like Word Live, or, or, or if you um, went to school or university, you know, you've had a long day of lessons or lectures, and you get to the end of it, and you think, I'm, I, no more is going to go in, I'm full. One reason to be unable to learn is that all the RAM is taken up. Every, every last bit of memory is, is being used. Your brains are finite. It, it is at least conceivably possible for you to learn so much that there is nothing more you could learn. That's one reason not to be able to learn in the creature. Another reason is to have been damaged by the frost. Um, well, that's for a water butt, but obviously... Um, I suppose that's possible for a person as well. Uh, but um, there's a leak. You can't learn because whatever comes in goes straight out again. And so you can't learn. You can't, you can't take in any more information. But what if... What if your water butt didn't fit in your back garden because it was too big? In fact, what if your water butt was so massive that it contained all the water in the world? No. What if it was so big that it contained all the water in the universe? What then? Could it get any fuller? No. It couldn't, could it? Because there is literally no more water to add. When we talk about God not being able to learn, it is because there is nothing you can add. There is literally no more knowledge available for him to have. Why can't God learn? Because all the knowledge in the universe is already there. Now, quickly, I'd like us to have a look at Psalm 139. Now, uh, that's an image from the Truman Show. Uh, and if you've seen the Truman Show, you know that Truman tries to escape from this fake god, Christoph, and... Um, by, sorry, I'm ruining the film for you, by the way, if you haven't seen it, so don't bother. Um, by sailing across this ocean in a yacht, and on the, 
uh, on the sale of that yacht is a number, that number is 139. Uh, because in Psalm 139, David says, you know, if I was to sail across the sea, he'd still be there. Uh, and um, in the Truman Show, Truman sails across the sea and he escapes. Christoph can no longer see him, has no longer any control of him. So, in the Truman Show, there is this idea that, you know, you can escape from God's knowledge. You can, you can get away from God. Now, that's absolutely typical of how people who don't want God in their lives think about God. What do you do with a God you want to get rid of? You say, he cannot see me. So, in Psalm 73, the evildoers say, the Most High, does he have knowledge? Can he see? Does he know? God's knowledge is so bound up with who he is that to be an atheist is to say, he can't see me. Or to put it another way, to say, he can't see me is to be an atheist. If you think there is any darkness you can hide in, you don't worship the God of the Bible. So Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him to whom we must all give an account. God sees everything. And that's a terrifying thought for people who don't want God in their lives. And so they say, he can't see me. Which is another way of saying he doesn't exist. Now, look at Psalm 139 which to the writers and director of the Truman Show is such an oppressive idea, uh, this idea of a God who cannot be escaped, who cannot be hidden from. Uh, and um, let's look at it together and think about these three questions very quickly. So I've, I've printed it for you um, so that you can underline bits. Uh, but just whiz through that. Again, same drill, so same people. Uh, quickly, uh, on your own, first of all, go through and underline um, some answers to these questions. Uh, and then um, talk about them together. Okay, go for it. Okay, now, <clears throat> Psalm 139 is absolutely extraordinary, and it's the sort of thing you could spend days, weeks, just meditating on. It's just marvellous. But, um, you know, we've got two minutes. So, Rather than sort of taking feedback, um, let me just give you some of the things that I think kind of jump out of the psalm at me in terms of David's reflection on God's knowledge of him and God's knowledge of his world. What does God know? Well, God knows everything. Okay, well, we know that from Isaiah 40. God knows everything. But everything includes the sorts of things that we think are unknowable. Okay, so um, take verse 12. Even the darkness won't be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So the things that hide, that keep knowledge from us, don't keep knowledge from God. So verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You know me better than I know myself, to the extent that you know completely what I'm going to say, and I think it's not too much of a stretch to say why I'm going to say it. That's what it means to know a word completely. You really want to understand the person you're talking to. You need to know why they're saying what they're saying, not just what the words are. You know it completely before it's even on my tongue, before I've even thought of what I'm going to say next. You know. In fact, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. When I didn't have a body, you saw it. 
You saw me in the secret place. You saw me when I was growing in my mother's womb. And before I was even born, every single day of my life was already mapped out in your book. All of it. From before birth until I'm lowered into the ground. You, Lord, know it all. Or does God know he knows everything, but not in the sort of way that we think you can know things. Now, how does God know this stuff? How do you and I know things? Well, we know things um, largely by experience, don't we? By sense experience. So information is coming to me right now uh, that I'm stood in front of the crowd of the most beautiful people I've ever seen um, as the misleading light bounces off you uh, and, uh, and back to me. And, and I know that you haven't been completely insulted by that because I hear slight ripples of laughter coming back from you, which is lovely, which come into my ears. Now, is that kind of sense experience available to God? No. Darkness, lack of speech, lack of existence there, no barrier to God knowing me. God doesn't know me the way I know me. God doesn't know things the way I know things. He knows them differently. Look at verse 13. How does God know? That little word for is always so crucial, isn't it? What's it there for? It's there to tell me that the way God knows me isn't because I exist, but so that I exist. For you created me. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know me. Why? Because you made me. You know this universe. Why? Because you made it. You know the names of all the stars. Why? Because they wouldn't exist if you didn't call them out by name says Isaiah. You see, just as we get confused by the idea of omnipotence, God's all-powerfulness, as though that in some sort of childish way means God could do anything, we have the same problem with omniscience, the idea that God knows everything. We try to make God like a bigger version of ourselves, That is the human disease. We try to make God in our own image. It's what sin is like. We make God to be like things in the creation. It's the very heart of sin. We don't accept him the way he is. So when we think about God's knowledge, we think about God as being like a kind of massive overblown version of Google. He thinks like I think. He knows things the way I know things. And so he's just, omniscience means he's got all true facts. In the way that Google is trying to gather together all possible available facts and so you know have uh, unlimited power to give information and therefore to sell advertising google is just the world's biggest advertiser that's their basic business but god is not like google he doesn't know things like your computer knows them he doesn't just have access to all the information he knows things in exactly the opposite way to to the way that you know them You know true things, the the true things that you know, you know because they're true. Because they exist, because they're there, because those facts are available. You know that you're in this room sitting next to someone, why? Because that's what's happening. It's a slightly oversimplified. But God knows things not because they exist, 
but so that they will exist. This is how Augustine put it. And this is reflecting on the sort of thing you find in Psalm 139. This world would not have been known to us unless it existed, but it would not have existed unless it had been known to God. not have existed unless it had been known to God. Do you see that God is better than you ever imagined? Bigger than you ever imagined. The way he knows things is not the way you know things. We haven't even got started on the way he knows how things are related to everything else. And you'll be relieved to know that because of time we won't, have, we won't do. <laughs> and what does all this mean then in terms of God and the world? Well, it means that God can't be surprised. So I tested this slide on my wife, and she said, it's a bit, go- it's a bit YouTube, isn't it? I said, uh, they're YouTube kind of people. God can't be surprised. Nothing, nothing creeps up on him. He knows the future as well as he knows the present, as well as he knows the past. None of them are any different to him. Because of the way that he knows things. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You know me because even before I was born, every day of my life, you had mapped out. Because why? Because you made me, because you made the universe, because this is your world, Lord. So there's nothing that can surprise him. Now the objection comes. Surely that can't be true because we know that human beings are responsible for what they do. And this sounds as though it's making God responsible for what human beings do. And so they can't. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Don't look it up now, you haven't got time. But Joseph says to his brothers about their enslaving of him and selling him to uh, the Egyptians. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, and for what is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. Well, Peter, in his speech in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, says that Jesus was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Bible just puts those things next to each other and says, yeah, you intended to do evil. That is what you did. And God intended it for good. God stood behind your actions and you stood behind your own actions. You can't be wiser than God. You can't come to the Bible and say, yeah, well, that can't be... That's part of being a creature, is letting God be God and say, if this is the version of reality that God wants to present me with... This is reality. Writing about the Arian heretics in the 4th century, Athanasius of Alexandria complained, they think that if they can't understand something, it isn't true. And so they deny the reality of who Jesus is because they say he can't be both God and man. That's not possible. So they deny what the Bible says. Now that's our temptation when we're confronted by some of these really big truths about God's knowledge and his power, we're tempted to think, well, hang on, that can't be right because. But then you come up against verses like Genesis 50, 20, or Acts 2, 23. And God says, they're both true. Yes, you're responsible. And yes, I'm in control. Actually, your job isn't to figure out how those things are true, but to live knowing that they are. so that you can sleep at night, so you can know that God is completely in control of the world, so that Romans 8, when, um, when we read that God works all things for the good of those who love him, that's actually true. He really is at work in his world, even when it seems to be unimaginably awful. 
there's a God there you can trust. It's not outside his control. It's not running away. This is not a runaway train. There's a driver. He knows where he's going. It will be okay. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2015. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to local communities in the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.